The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we do gather to celebrate remarkable today. We remember how you sent your Son into the world to change everything forever. And we say thank you, then immediately ask for more that you would help us to understand what that sentence means, that you changed everything forever. We understand some of it and we thank you for it, but we don't understand. We just don't understand. So God, I pray. As we celebrate this morning and as we listen to one portion of your word this morning, would you move and grow our understanding and help us to understand the understanding that you have given and do continue to give person by person. A great and remarkable gift of understanding. Lord, would you do a work in your people here this morning to cause worship and joy and blessed rest to rise in us and, and control us. And, and Lord, even would you make us different such that something would happen today, this week as we reflect on, on this passage that would, would make for different lives, not just different moments, but different lives among your people of worship and blessed rest. We consider today something marvelous that you have given and would you change your people with that, with, with that gracious gift, understanding it, change your people and build your church. And Lord, for those here who are not at the moment your people and who will sit here on the outside looking in, would you awaken and, and perhaps alarm, but do so for the sake of saving, rescuing, please, that they too may know the joy and the rest that is yours for your people. There are two groups of people who, who sit before you this morning, Lord, and you know, you know them far better than, than I do. But I pray, do a work in each group. Grow your people, increase their joy, and call in from the other group. Call into your family more. It's our hope. You would give new life here in the season that we celebrate your birth. The birth of your son is precious. Make it more precious to us. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
This morning we leave our usual study in the book of 2 Samuel to celebrate Christmas. And in a way, it's not necessary that we do this. We're, we're doing it to move to the New Testament and take a, a slightly different look to see a different perspective on Jesus. But we could just as well stay in 2 Samuel because as we've seen week after week after week, the Old Testament also points our minds and our hearts towards the promised Christ, the promised coming King. We could be in Second Samuel and, and develop that. and We could be in Second Samuel and read of, of what we see in Luke chapter 2. said to Mary, you shall bear a son, Jesus, the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Is that in the New Testament or in Samuel? That could fit right into 2 Samuel. So we, we could very much stay in the Old Testament and celebrate Christmas there. But we moved to the New Testament this morning just to get a little different perspective. Not out of need, but out of a desire for a change of pace and to think about Christ coming in a different way. And towards that end, we come to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to drop right into, into the very end of this book. And of course, there is a larger context that we're largely skipping. John writes, the, the Apostle John writes this book to Christians, to a church, helping them to deal with all kinds of issues as they face a world of sin and trouble, and particularly to identify who are Christians. So we're only coming to the very end of the book and catching just a little slice, but we'll notice immediately that he's talking about how the world faces a great problem, the power of the evil one. Verses I'm going to mention today, mention him twice. And hold up Christ and his coming as remedy, as solution to that. So I'm going to read from verse 18 to the end of the book, but we're only really going to be focusing on part of 19 and then especially 20 and 21. I'll read 18 and 19 to set the context for us. And I pray that as, as we do this and as we preach through it, as I prayed earlier, that Christians... You are His people. You would find here something that is marvelous, helpful, encouraging to your hearts as you face a world that is lost. But also, I, I don't know everybody here, and I'm sure there are some here who are not at the moment Christians, and I pray that God would speak to you and would call you out of darkness into light. So let me read 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 18. And read through the end. It's just four verses. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The word of the Lord, 1 John 5. It's 
So I said I'm going to emphasize the last two verses and try to make this one simple point from this passage. I express it in one sentence. He came, referring to Christ, He came, gave, and still gives that which we need to know Him. He came, gave, and still gives that which we need to know Him. I'm going to unpack that sentence in in three points here, drawing them out of this passage. Here's the first observation. The Son has come to give us understanding. The Son has come to give us understanding. Verse 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come. We, in each of these verses, he's writing to Christians, so the we here is is, is a narrow we. It's not everybody on the planet. He's, he's speaking to Christians. We know, we know something. And it stands in contrast to what we know right before, back in verse 19. So let's, let's roll back a little bit. We need to set, set the stage here before we come all the way into verse 20. Verse 19, we Christians know again, talking about Christians. So he's talking about a people here. And this is important that we understand the lay of the land as we come to this passage. He's talking about a people who have understood and embraced that which we're coming to. But to be brief now, a people who understand their own sin, understand the justice of God, understand Christ and His cross as provision for sin, payment for sin, and more than just intellectually understanding it, have embraced it, have have grabbed hold of it and trusted that message trusted that person crucified, surrendered themselves to him. In other words, a Christian. Those people that he's talking to, and he says, we, we Christians, we know something that we are from God, verse 19, or verse 18, that we have been born of God. As distinct from all others on the earth. So listen to this carefully. This is important to set the stage for all the rest of this. There's a line here in, in the Bible. There's a line in reality in the world between two types of people, two broad categories of people. Christians, just described very briefly, and everyone else called the world. Two different, two different groups. And there's a line between them. But, but do not think of that line between them as, as a high impenetrable wall or fence or barrier. People are, are every day, every moment crossing from one camp to the other, are leaving the world and coming into Christ. But there are very clearly two different categories. It's important to understand because as he says in verse 19, one category, we are from God, other category, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the other category. And the evil one, that's a reference to Satan, the devil, who is a real spiritual being, evil, totally malevolent, evil. No good in him whatsoever. 
a real spiritual being, an angel who refused to serve God humbly and to this day now, even even this very day, exercises power in and over everyone else on the earth that also refuses to serve God humbly according to the way God wants them to serve Him. Two categories, Christians and those who are under the power of the evil one. Now, to hear about Satan, I thought we were celebrating Christmas. What, you, what in the world is going on here? To, to hear about Satan in this context, and then to hear about Satan, because I think if I was following that, I think that guy just said that he has power and influence over me. Because I'm not a Christian. Or over all these other people here who aren't Christians. Yeah, that's kind of surprising, shocking maybe, even perhaps sounds insulting to many people. But let me just point out, there is no intended insult and certainly no arrogance in this statement. If you're not a Christian this morning, and therefore this is about you, or if you have family members and friends that aren't Christians, and therefore this is about them, please understand that when the Bible says something like this, or when I am saying something like this, it is not intended in, in any way to be boastful, it is not coming, meant to come across as condemning or mean-spirited in any way. The, realize the text is talking to Christians and describing the world. But if it were to turn, if I were to turn, as I am now for a moment, to speak to you, I would say this in the spirit of loving warning. You are in the midst of a tremendous danger that you don't know anything about. You are unaware of it. That is because this evil one, evil one, hates you. Hates you. God is not the one who hates you. This evil one hates you, and aims with every bit of power that he can muster to kill, steal, and destroy you. And the Bible makes very clear in, in how it describes him and names that it gives him that he is the master deceiver, and he knows full well the best way to destroy you is to deceive you into thinking that he doesn't even exist The guy who's going to rob your house does not send you a postcard the week before and announce it. He comes without warning. The person who means to do you really real ill knows that the best way is for you to be unprepared to defend against it. And this deceiver knows best how to kill, steal, and destroy. He exercises dominion over you to kill, steal from you, and to destroy you. And he wants you, best of all, to think, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. No way! Which does not change the reality of it, just makes you stop thinking about it and ignore it. The whole world lies in the power of evil, and perhaps, I don't know who I'm talking to, but perhaps that means you, perhaps that means your family, and there is no bit of arrogance and no bit of, of puffed up pride in that. There is just loving warning. Be aware. 
This has been the case from the beginning, from the fall of humanity into sin, which has wrecked the world everywhere, has it not? There is a power at work in the world. And we've had plenty of centuries to try to improve ourselves and fix it all, and that's just getting worse and worse and worse. There is a great problem. The evil one has all of the world under his power. And that is a tremendous problem for those particular people who are under his power, but it is a problem for the other camp as well because we suffer in the midst of this fallen world. The world in its totality its people and its systems is full of a great and terrible power which is a great and terrible danger to us. And now verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. Here is remedy. See the contrast in these two statements back to back. Here is redemption. Here is hoped for deliverance. It's meant to hit us like this. We know that the liberating army has landed. You think of a situation like World War II, for instance. You're in occupied Europe. And still in occupied Europe, but you have heard word of the successful landing in France. And we know that he has come. Relief. The Son has come, referring here to Jesus, God the Son. The Bible explains that there is only one God. Here he is called several times the one true God. One God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. One God. And God the Father sent God the Son in time and in space. Being God, He was always omnipresent, always interacting with everything all over the globe and throughout all the creation. But in a particular time and in a particular place, something unique happened. The Son of God came, took on a human body. God was born in Bethlehem. A particular place at a particular time. All the stuff that we sing about and read about, it actually happened. For real. It actually happened. For real. In time and in place. He became a man was born as a baby in Bethlehem. John writes, and we know, and in part he can say that because he himself had a decades-long relationship with Mary. He knew her, cared for her, stayed with her, probably all the way to her death. 
Surely he heard it off of her lips. The angel came and said to me, Though you are a young, unmarried girl who has never known a man, you're going to be pregnant. How can that be? God's going to make a miracle happen. And you will have a baby inside of you who will be son of man. He will be a real man, but not only a real man, he will be son of God. God the Son come to be born in a body that's growing inside of you. I could hardly believe it, says Mary to John. But it happened in time and in space for real. We know he has come. Just as was promised throughout all the Old Testament prophets, the king will come and he will sit on the throne of David and reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It happened. God did what he said. He was born in a manger in Bethlehem in the middle of darkness on purpose. Ever wonder why she gave birth at night? To make this point, light come in the middle of darkness and the angels sang from heaven in the midst of a glorious light. Here is light shining in the midst of darkness. Here is God's remedy come into a world that is under the power of the evil one. He has come. Literally, the grammar could be translated, and maybe maybe your English translation does put it like this, though it's a little bit awkward in English. He is come. It's awkward, but it's trying to underline something, a little wrinkle in the language that's, that's telling us He didn't come and then go. He has come. State. He's in the state of come. Yes, He ascended back into heaven, but there's something about His coming that stays, that remains. What is it? What continues? Well, that which is emphasized in his purpose. Still in verse 20, we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. The verse continues. He has illumined, shown light into darkness, illuminated, given understanding. What, what is that about? Well, in general... We can speak about this generally, and we're going to then come to speak about it specifically in a, mo- in a moment. But in general, he comes to illumine, to give understanding in several different ways. All as a counteraction to the deception of the deceiver who holds sway over the world. He's going to come in and counteract the deception by shining forth truth, by illumining, by giving understanding. And, and what he teaches, first of all, Jesus, for three years, walked the earth and and taught and taught and taught in synagogues, on mountainsides, in living rooms, and taught and taught and taught. And taught with authority and clarity that was remarkably new. We see things in the New Testament like, you have read, you have heard, but I tell you, because I'm the one from whom the written word comes. I'm the one from whom the authority comes to you. I can say it again right now. I tell you, all authority. 
and he clarifies and he elaborates. This is truth. This is what God is. This is what you're like. This is what pleases Him. Illumining the law and the character of God. So for instance, when the world under the power of the evil one is deceived into thinking that being nice and ethical and moral and generous and caring and compassionate and gracious and loving is good enough to make us right and acceptable to God. All that. When the world is deceived by the evil one who aims to kill, steal, and destroy, when the world is deceived into thinking, just be good, at least better than that guy, be good, and that's good enough. Jesus comes and gives understanding and clarifies the lie. In fact, no, there is no one good. No, not one. Only God. And in fact, when you read in in the law of God, do not commit adultery, I tell you that if you look on someone else longingly and lustfully, you've already broken that commandment. You read in the law of God, do not commit murder, I tell you that if you look on somebody in anger, you've already broken that commandment. He's giving understanding to help us understand what God actually requires and in the same breath what we fall short of. He gives understanding as He teaches and as He lives, as He walks around walking and modeling what God is like because He is God in the flesh. He gives us understanding in His teaching and His living and in His dying. As He hangs on the cross, we see the mercy and the gracious, loving, outreaching nature of God. You need a solution to your sin problem and here it is provided by God on the cross. He gives understanding as He teaches and as He lives and as He dies. That's why He came. Now this, as I said, is the general nature of His giving of understanding. It is necessary to combat this power of the evil one, but it is not sufficient. There is something more specific, more focused that we'll come to in a moment. But we should pause right here. I'm going to put a question to you. Is He giving you understanding? And perhaps more important beneath that, do you care? Do you care? And stop, and if you can, for a moment, step outside of yourself and say, why don't I care? Why am I listening along, wondering when He's going to be done as he talks about things of eternal importance, about my soul, about a God who is real, about judgment and mercy and grace, about deception and death, and I'm bored. If that's you, ask, why? And let me suggest to you, it might be that you just discovered the deceiver who is working Perhaps massaging your mind and heart to try to put it to sleep or perhaps locking down blinders over you to keep you from seeing 
Paul will talk in 2 Corinthians 4 about how he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel. Perhaps you just discovered those blinders. Why don't you care? It's not because this isn't awesome. not because this isn't glorious. not because it isn't true. Why don't you? You might have just discovered the problem for which the second point provides the great solution. The Son has come to give understanding, and I talked about the understanding generally, but now let's, we're going to move on into the understanding and become more specific. Here's the second point. As we continue to follow verse 20, we come to reason. A reason. He came to illumine, to give understanding, but if you notice, that's not the end of the, the logic of the sentence. That's what happened. So that, says in the middle of the verse, the point of it all, the Son gives us understanding so that we can know the true God. The Son gives us understanding so that we can know the true God. That's the goal that God has for us and accomplishes for us. Bless God. Bless God. He's given us an understanding that makes it so that we know God now. What kind of understanding makes that happen? Not just the necessary bit that I was talking about before of how he clarifies in teaching and in living who God is and who we are and what God requires and how God provides solution. Not only that, there's, there's more. Not just an intellectual understanding. So what kind, of, what kind of understanding is it? Well, we're helped by following through the rest of the verse. There are a couple of related terms here. As we walk through, I think we'll see it. Middle verse 20, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. Pause there for a moment. So two back-to-back phrases that are essentially saying the same thing. So that we know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. He's restating something. Earlier in the book, in chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6, John will use similar terminology about knowing God, about being in God, about abiding in God. He'll use them in parallel sentences to show he means essentially the same thing. This is the language of relationship. We don't just know about God, we know God. We are in Him as opposed to being outside of or separate from or away from Him. In Him. You think of it like a, like a balloon... You blow air into it, it's now inside that sphere, in God, in relationship with God, connected to Him. Continuing on the verse, we know Him, we are in Him who is true, that is, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life which is likely a statement about Jesus. It would be redundant 
a third time over to, to make that refer only to God the Father. We've already said twice that He's the true God. It seems that following on the heels of Jesus, this is a statement about Jesus. He is the true God in eternal life. It's with how Jesus is described elsewhere as God and who is the way, the truth, and the life. So we have an interesting incidental claim here about the deity of Jesus. And I say incidental because it's not really the point. The point, follow this whole thing through now. I know this is a little difficult to follow all this. Follow it through. We have been given an understanding of what sort? Of a sort that brings us to know God. That is, to be in God. That is, to be in His Son, Christ, to have eternal life. What is it that we understand that brings us into Christ and eternal life? He has given an understanding of the gospel. That's what He gave so that we understand it and come into His Son, that is, into Him, that is, to know Him. He gives an understanding of the gospel. And again, not simply an intellectual understanding of the gospel. Countless people can recite the details and yet are not in God, do not know Him, are not saved. This is a saving knowledge, a spiritual understanding. As Paul, again, 2 Corinthians 4, using very similar language, Paul talks about there how the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the, the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, he says in the same context, but for us, He has shown light so that we can see it. He has given understanding of the glory of the gospel. This is precious. Precious. We. Look at these precious pronouns here. Christian, he's talking about you. We know that he has given us understanding so that we may know him and we are in him. An understanding of the gospel. This is his marvelous Christmas gift to you. What he came to give you. Understanding of the gospel that you may know him. An understanding of the holy and just righteous nature of God, an understanding of your, our wicked sin and deserved judgment, an understanding then of your need for a Savior and an understanding of Christ as that provided Savior. You understand, understood all of it far more than intellectually, effectually. That is, it had effect in you. It drove you to despair of sin and then hope in Christ as your Savior. And you trusted Him. And as you did trust Christ, you were placed in Christ. That is, you were placed in God. That is, you were brought to know Him. Glorious. 
glorious. To the praise of His glorious grace, this gift to you. How good He is. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'm talking about, the text is talking about we, us, we, us. This category. If you're not a Christian, what of you? You know, friends and family aren't Christians. What of them? Does this exclude you? Well, at the moment, yes. This is true of this group. And at the moment, not of this group. This is about what God has done for those whom He chose to give this gift of understanding and therefore life with Him too. And that should be obvious because you don't understand the Gospel right now. You may intellectually understand it, but it does not, as I just said, grip you and move you to repentance and faith. You just look at it and say... Hmm, interesting details. But you don't see it. Right now, that should be obvious. That's, that's where you are, outside of this. But realize this. We look at these two groups here. Everybody in this group used to be in this group. And we don't know who this group is other than by looking backwards. God knows looking forward. God, God knows who in the end of time, who all these people, God knows looking forward. We do not know looking forward. We only know looking backward. To whom has He given this gift of understanding? Well, who understands? Them. Ask another question. To whom will He give this gift of understanding tomorrow or this afternoon or three minutes from now? I have no idea. Maybe you. Do you care? Oh, I hope so. This is not a game. I hope you care. And the proper way to respond to anybody who has something that you want and need is to Ask, and to ask humbly, not in a demanding way or in an argumentative way. How come I don't have that right now? I should have that right now. <sighs> Tragedy. Do you, maybe that's what's rising up in you right now. Maybe not, maybe not, I don't care, but maybe, how dare that God, how dare that book, how dare that preacher say that I'm outside? Oh. That kind of attitude doesn't get you anything from anybody, does it? The way to come to somebody who has something that you need and want is to humbly ask. And all the more so here when you deal with the King of everything, God Almighty. If you find... I see the details of the gospel. It doesn't grip me, but I wish that it did. 
and say, God, help. Do you see your sin against Him and His right judgment of your sin and your need for a Savior and His provision sending Christ to lay out the truth and also then to open your eyes to it? All by the mercy of God, do you see that? Do you want that? Ask and repent and believe. And the Bible promises, promises, the Bible swears on a stack of Bibles, if you will. Everyone who comes to Him humble, repentant, and asking, He gives and receives. He gives to them life and receives them as His own. You are outside right now. I have no idea. You have no idea if you'll be inside in five minutes, but I promise you the only way to get in is to repent and believe. Do you see it? May God give you understanding even right now. Humbly ask Him. But again... I want to point out that the audience here is Christians. He's not really talking to non-Christians. He's talking to Christians, telling them something for their encouragement. So Christian, he's talking to you for your encouragement. He's telling you something marvelous that happened to you given by the true God before you were also under the power of the evil one. But God the Son came and gave you eye-opening grace so that you saw and repented and believed so that you could know Him, the one true God. Awesome. Awesome. The only God who is creator and sustainer, ruler and judge, Fulfiller and completer. Lover of your soul. God Almighty. The true God. It says that three times in this verse. The true one. Not just meaning that he tells the truth. That's the case also. But meaning that every other concept, every other creation... Every other theory about something that calls itself God is myth. Every other religion in the world. Somebody once said there are 10,000 other religions of various sorts and shades and colors and shapes and 9,999 of them are myth. There was only one true God. The one who made everything and acted in grace, Christian, so that you can know Him. God. God. Most of us would consider it a privilege to count some famous athlete or movie star or politician a personal friend. Stop for a second. Think about that. It would be the talk of the town. If I knew, pick somebody. If I knew the president personally, 
hung out with him, played golf with him, chatted with him on the phone. That would be remarkable. It doesn't matter what you think of the president. It would be remarkable. Pick your own favorite president. It would be remarkable. It would be remarkable. And that's nothing. Whichever is your favorite president was born and will die and be done. This is God who acted so that you can know Him who lives forever and is everything. Consider your immense good fortune. You used to be under the power of the evil one and He acted to liberate you and to bring you into relationship with Him, the one who in His very being causes our hearts to marvel who is the definition of glory. Amazement is a small word to describe interacting with one who is perfect in every way, marvelous in perfect wisdom. He always does what is right because he is marvelous in perfect goodness and always does what is right rightly in the right time and in exactly the right way because he has all power. He is awesome. He's the one for whom your heart was made and the one from whom you were separated at fall and He acted to bring you back glory. Pouring out love that is wide and long and high and deep on you in relationship with you forever and ever and ever eternal life. Oh, little children. The dear term. Oh, little children. Keep yourselves from idols. Which brings us to the final observation. The third point. I'll put it like this. And it's only one sentence drawn from verse 21, so I'm going to... Use one sentence to try to rephrase another sentence. Say it differently, but here's here's how I'm going to put it. Don't waste yourself on what is not the true God. Don't waste yourself on what is not the true God, on idols. It is easy on first read, and perhaps even it struck you as I read through it at the beginning, it's easy on first read to wonder how in the world verse 21 relates to verse 20. Seems like it's kind of tacked on the end there, but I, I hope that as we work through verse 20, something about the connection kind of rose out of that. The one who is true, the true God, is mentioned three times in verse 20. Something marvelous that we have been given to experience So the mention of idols, that which are false gods, is a natural contrast in the last verse. That's the connect. When you have the true, why waste yourself on the false? Well, we do that for some of the same reasons that I tend to eat a bag of tortilla chips while standing in the kitchen looking at dinner on the stove done in 10 minutes. 
I do that all the time. (laughs) And for some of those same reasons, we waste ourselves on idols when we have the true one. Because I'm impatient. I'm hungry right now. And I can do something about it right now. And I can't right now see any kind of long-term effect of eating all those chips and less of the good, healthy meal that's pending while I munch. There might be long-term effect of that, but I can't see it right now. I'm hungry right now, and I can do something about it right now, and I'm impatient. And I use that example to draw out something important from verse 21. Keep yourselves from idols. That's a command, not a suggestion. Not a good idea. It's a command. Carries the tone of watch out against, guard against. A keeping, a guarding. And certainly, one thing we need to have in mind as we read that and we contemplate idolatry is the offense that it is against this one true God who has been so gracious to save us and give us this gift of understanding to bring us into relationship with Him and then we shun Him and go chase the chips. We need to keep in mind the the offense that that is and the dishonor it is to God. Don't denigrate Him like that. But, so that's true, keep that in mind, but there's more. This is not a command that carries heaviness or severity. It is not voice like this. Don't do that. I like that. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's a term of endearment. That's precious, soft language. He's not coming like that. But he has a command in it. So there's, we've got to catch the flavor of this and understand what he's getting at. Be on your guard against the tendency to follow false gods. Now, he does not mean, we talk about idols, he doesn't mean physical statutes made out of stone or, or gold. An idol, a false god, is anything in the world that gets out of place and takes first place in our affections. All that would hold our allegiance and would command our attention and offer to satisfy our appetites for wonder and pleasure and contentment and happiness and praise and excitement. Right now. How the great deceiver works, even with us who are believers, is to lay out Stuff like that right now. Sometimes he does so very directly, supernaturally, spiritually, but oftentimes he just leverages things that are already in our own hearts or already all around us in the world. He lays it out there right now, offered. The real meal is on the stove in front of your eyes. It may take a little bit of effort. It may take a little bit of patience, a little bit of time. And the idols of your heart and the world offer to satisfy your hunger and slake your thirst right now. Watch out for that, little ones. 
The great danger in these idols is not the offense against the true God. The great danger in the idols is the same thing that happens after I've eaten half a bag of Santita's tortilla chips and then sit down in front of vegetables and a little bit of protein and a very bit of starch, you know, and and I can't eat. I'm full on corn and salt. Little children, there is an enemy. You have an enemy who cannot ultimately kill you, but he can steal from you. He can steal from you full, lasting satisfaction. And if he can't get all of it, he'll take as much of it as he can. He'll take it now by offering you something to fill you up with falsity. The danger is that you'll fill up on that and long term your appetite for the God who is true will diminish. You will still, because you are a Christian, you will still taste and see that the Lord is good. You will have moments of that. You will have periods and times of that. But the great tragedy is if you find yourself come to a place where all you can do is just taste You cannot sit and feast because you're full of the world all around you. Little children, do not go there. Be on guard against that. Keep idols away that you may be fully feasting and fully satisfied on the God who made you and acted to bring you into relationship with Him for your great, full, glorious good. Christmas is because He means for you to know Him and live on Him who is invisible and true. He is the one for whom you were made. Keep yourselves from idols, little children, including all the ones wrapped up under the Christmas tree right now. Enjoy His good gifts, including the ones wrapped up under the Christmas tree right now. Enjoy His good gifts and be on guard to keep them at best in second place for the good and joy of your own soul. Rejoice in the true God who sent Christ that you may know Him. He has come and He gave and still gives what we need to know Him. Bless God for it. I want to give you a few minutes to reflect here, to think and pray and praise God or sit and ask Him for a renewing of your taste for Him. If you're not a Christian, I urge you, repent and believe. Take a few minutes to sit and reflect and then we will close. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
we invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. 